0: Hello, and welcome to Politics War Room with James Carville, and I'm Al Hunt. This week, our guest is retired four-star Navy Admiral, best-selling author, and the former NATO Supreme Allied Commander, Admiral James Severidis. Remember, we love taking your questions, so write into politicswarroom at gmail.com or send a tweet to at Plitikon for next week's show. We'll get to as many as we can, but don't forget to tell us where you're from. Please check out the link to our sponsor, Hold On Bags, in the show notes. We thank you for supporting our sponsors. It helps make this podcast happen. Please tell your friends about us and remind them to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. James, we have, uh, to paraphrase uh, Joe Biden once, in another context, Uh, there is a big fucking story this week. A former... FBI, top FBI official Charles McGonigal was arrested for illicitly working with a Russian oligarch and an Albanian intelligence person. There are three potential critical bombshells to this story. One, McGonigal was the head of counterintelligence in the FBI's New York office in 2016-18. What dealings did he have with the Russian oligarch, or for that matter, the Albanians, uh, who he's also accused of any? What, what dealings did he have with them when he was in the FBI, or did he? Two, the oligarch, uh, an aluminum uh, guy who has very close ties to two people, Vladimir Putin and Paul Manafort, who was Trump's campaign manager, and uh, this oligarch was one of his clients. And three, did McGonagall play any role in telling the media there was no Trump-Russia ties before the 2016 election? And if and if so, why? And J- as James Comey said, one reason he publicly revealed the phony Hillary Clinton email probe w- w- right before the election was otherwise it would leak from the New York office. Is that McGonigal? Uh I think this is this is a big story and I think there's a lot more to learn about it.
1: Well, I mean, I, th- I think we're on, on very safe grounds and this is potentially a, 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 an enormous story, not just big. I mean, big like but, but you can't imagine how big. It, rather than getting too deep in the woods, I'll do that somewhat. i, just, I recommend talking points memo. Josh Marshall, he's been on this, and, and he's very good. And uh, Michael Beschloss, who's the historian, is he thinks this is one gigantic deal. And he's a, and you know him, and he, he's not a, he's not like me. He doesn't hyperventilate. You know, he's pretty, pretty judicious guy. Uh, I understand that you, you know, spoke to a, a, a very knowledgeable person who thought it was potentially huge.
0: Yeah, James, I spoke to a very high, very high former Justice Department official who really knows a lot about these things. And he says this is a huge story and he sees a real probability that McGonigal played a role uh, in uh, the New York office uh, efforts to pressure Comey uh, against Hillary uh, and also maybe in a number of the media stories.
1: Well, there's so many things that I could expand on. If we did this, we'd never get out of here. But there's one question that relates to the Times, go and potential questions. On October 30th, 2000— You're talking about the New York Times. The New York, yes, I'm sorry. Thank you. The New York Times. On October 30th, 2016, they ran a story by a journalist named Eric Lickbaugh, and the title was Investigating Trump, FBI Sees No Close Link to Russia that we know that that's completely erroneous. We know that from the Mueller report. I am told that Mr. Ligbauer, I know that he's no longer at the Times, but the, the strong suspicion is that he resigned because he was forced to write that story. And I think we deserve an explanation. Was McGonagall the source for this story? Was the Times pressured by the FBI in in to do this now, my question to you—and and, uh, you teach at Penn—and you're probably one of the senior, most longtime journalists in the United States. And I, I know, but you tell me you—you you talk about journalistic ethics, or whether you print this or not. And I know enough that that journalists, a good journalist, always protect their sources. I've been a source of yours a hundred freaking times in my life, as any other number of times. I'll leak like shit. A hundred plumbers couldn't plug up all the leaks I'll give. But if you subsequently find out that the leaker whose word you relied on is potentially a traitor and a criminal, do you owe that person confidentiality? Because that, that kind of is a game changer. So I, I'd like to hear it from you. Know, what do you think? Of that?
0: James, revealing a confidential source is one of the most precarious things that anyone in journalism can ever do. There's probably nothing, you, you know, when you give your word, you, you have to keep it. And there are only rare exceptions. Right. One exception was our, our former colleague and friend Robert Novak uh, went and in about, I guess, about 20 years ago, he revealed that one of his sources, important sources, was a top uh, FBI official named Robert Hansen. And he revealed it because they, it later came out that Hansen was a Soviet spy. So Novak's rationale was this guy was giving me stuff under he, – he was, it was false pretenses of who he was, and no one could be sure that what he was giving me also wasn't false, although he said he checked out some stuff. So if it ends up that Mr. McGonagall – and I don't know this, I don't know this, but if he was really working for the Russians at the time he was, he was planning that story or circulating that story – then I think there's a very strong case that that source ought to be identified. It's something you rarely do, uh, but this, you know, under those circumstances, it might be, uh, you know, one of those uh, exceptions.
1: Right. I mean, I think, I, I, I just think that gives our listeners some insight into, but, you know, can't say that, but, but certainly want to look at that, investigate it. And I, I, I do make the point, I looked at the time site before we went on the show, and I've I stopped counting at 150 stories ahead. I just got bored and tired. And not a single one about this. Not not one. Not a single one. Now, how? Can it's you what they head? reported when, when he was arrested. They reported when they happened. Yeah. Uh, he, yeah. This is <laughs> this is shall we say shortly thereafter. Yeah. And 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 again, the, the consensus among people that we know. Uh, not all partisan Democrats, right? Historians, you know, high, previously high-ranking government officials say the potential for this thing is just unimaginable. And the idea that the paper record has dropped the story a day or 36 hours after or whatever it is, is is compelling. Now, we know what the response— the times would be if any other institution, the government, anybody else, had something like this, they would immediately call for outside, independent investigation to be made public. Well, the chances that we see that are zero. But it, this this thing is fascinating on a lot of different levels.
0: Yeah, I, I think the times doesn't need an outside investigation. They have enough talented and honest reporters, totally honest reporters, uh, that they all they have to do is uh, you know is uh, is put one of uh, or a couple of those people on this story. But that ought to be done because there are well, questions Mr. that Mr. Need...
1: Lickbauer, I think, was an honest reporter. Yeah. And, and, you know, I, you know, I'd love they to have know.
0: A, they have a whole slew of really great investigative reporters and some of whom have a great deal of knowledge uh, about the uh, the Russian Trump ties, so I would do this. I you know I also think James, this is, you know, this is a, a side point, but it's an important one. The House Republicans, the uh, you know the tough guy uh, Jim Jordan, is about to launch an investigation into the deep state, uh, including the FBI, with sort of the notion that you know there are a bunch of kind of quasi antifa uh, lefties there who are doing all kinds of things to hurt uh, God-fearing Americans like Donald Trump. What total BS that is. Uh, I mean, the FBI, I, I don't have a survey and I don't know. But if I were to guess, I'd guess that, you know, well over half of them are Republicans. I think most of them do their job very honestly. I think uh, I'm, I'm not suggesting that, you know, any of them are like or very few of them, if any, are like Mr. McGonagall. But the idea that it's some kind of left wing deep state, oh. uh, uh, you know, conspiracy there, of course, not. that won't stop. That won't stop Mr. Jordan. But um, I I, I think, uh, you know, it'd be good if he's serious about it to look into the New York FBI. Remember that a lot of them were uh, tied to Rudy. Uh, And uh, my guess is that Rudy and uh, McGonagall may have had some
1: association, don't you think? It's certainly something that is worthy of exploration and deep exploration. You know, it's going inside it. The decision that they had to make... And, you know, understand, I mean, I'm you, Merrick Garland was involved in this, uh, Chris Rade, isn't he the FBI director now? Yes. I, I guarantee you this was mulled over and chewed up and spit out to the general counsel of the FBI. That You can't imagine the number of people. I mean, th- this is so freaking historic and so potentially damaging uh, to the FBI. You know, usually institutions always have the, the reflex to kind of protect themselves. And I give these guys, I mean, maybe it was so egregious they had to, but you got to give these guys a little credit that they were willing to, to damage their brand, if you will, uh, to, to expose what, what it looks like it, uh, is a traitor and a criminal. And, and in terms of the political leanings of the FBI... I would be stunned if eighty five percent of the FBI agents didn't vote for John McCain in twenty twelve. I, I just would. I, I don't have a survey in front of me. I don't know these. But a lot of these guys, they, they, you know, all have like flat tops and wear white shirts and I, disproportionate number. of Cheer FBI for LSU on weekends. Yeah, and, and, you know, disproportionate number of FBI agents are from that hotbed of liberalism called the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter Day Saints. <laughs> I, I, I mean. It's kind of preposterous. But of course, in the entire history of the FBI, as we talked about last week, there has never been a Democratic director, ever. So the idea that Jim Jordan, who's a, a, a man that is very tolerant and protective of perverts, uh, says that is of no consequence at all.
0: Yeah, no, I uh, I couldn't agree more. I, yes, I I think uh, you know it showed some guts to do it. They had to do it. I mean, this is the highest-ranking FBI official ever ever arrested for this. He had uh, he was the head of counterintelligence in the New York yes. office. Yeah, I mean, that that is huge. Uh, yes. you know he had a top job at the FBI and Justice before that. This was a right. big guy, and he is dealing. you know he is he is apparently. I don't know if he's a Russian agent or not. I don't know that's even been charged. But he had very shady dealings with a very shady guy, and he and he lied about it. And he he and this guy's this guy was represented by Paul Manafort. Now you know, is it circumstantial evidence
1: to some extent? Yeah, but goddamn, it's awful big circumstantial evidence. Well, uh, first of all, I, I guess they had to do it. But you at least have to give them credit that they did okay. it. Now this is something to watch. You know what Always Ames and Robert Hansen have in common? What's that? They never went to trial. They generally do not take these. They, they said, look, you can spend time in this prison or that prison. We, we can't avoid this. Right. All right? Right. And because, as the dirty laundry. Well, let's just, I think I'd be right on this if I were to say, I think that this guy, had, McGonagall, has, he knows where a lot of bodies are buried. He knows where there's a lot of dirty laundry. And if I'm his lawyer, I'm saying, you guys want to do this, go ahead. But I'm telling you, we're going to have a vigorous ass defense here, and you're not going to come out of this looking very good. And the temptation to not have a trial in these cases, they usually don't, because because always James the Panson would say, "Okay, you have me. I'm going to tell you all the stuff I know." And they go, "Oh shit, no! We don't want to have that. This is something to look out for." But if I was representing him, and you know, let me tell you, this guy's got going to have good lawyers. There's no doubt about that. They are going to say, "You don't. You, you want to sweep this thing under the rug?" And you and I both know that it, the most crowded place on Earth is under the rug. Yeah, and sure is. I, I, well, I, I, I'm just going to be interested to see if this ever goes to trial and people are put under oath and, and cross examination because this guy knows a bucket load of stuff that they don't want out.
0: Well, if I were the, the government and his lawyer came to me with that proposition, uh, you know, first of all, uh, depending on the severity of the crime, and it may be quite severe, he certainly should get a heavy prison sentence, as Hanson did. Uh, and I also think uh, the part of that deal is that uh, some of what he knows is revealed. Uh, I don't think you can just say, "All right, we'll give him a," you know, "we'll give him 15 years or 20 years in prison." Uh, you know, if he engaged, you know, we won't threaten him with something more severe. But he's got to reveal what he knows.
1: That's the problem. They don't. <laughs> they, they may say, "Look, you got to go to jail." All right, that, that, that's not. You can go back and tell your client. I mean, this is just intolerable. Now you can go to that place in Florence where you spend a you know you you get to walk around the yard once a week or something and you know total isolation right or we can we have been influence with the bureau of prisons and we can send you to a place that you can have some visitors, and Allenwood. You know, I mean, it's a lot of difference. It sure is. I mean, twenty years is twenty years. Well, also the weight twenty years is all the difference in the world.
0: And and I don't know. Again, I don't know this, but in the Hanson case, a key question was his wife, and what did she know? And, right. And, and in the end, the FBI said, "Okay, we're not going to punish the wife. Uh, they had six kids." Uh, so I have no idea whether there's family Correct. or friends who were aware of what Mr. was doing, but that would be a consideration. Absolutely. And I mean, you
1: say, "Well, Hanson went to jail, so the system worked." Ah, ah, bam, You know, I think it was a similar thing with always change. But I think his wife was so implicated, they might have. Yeah. I don't know. I don't remember. But I think she was all part of it too. But but but. By the way, Robert Hanson was a, I think, a member of Opus Dei. Oh, of course, he uh, was. Huge. Which, uh, you know. Yeah, huge. <laughs> I mean, very, very, You're, very, not, very, you're very, not surprised, man. I can see. A very holy man, you know. Very, right. very, very, right. you know. I think he went to that church out there somewhere in suburban Virginia yeah, I do. Uh, that they all go to. Well, uh, I think
0: I think we agree. This is something we want to follow closely in the weeks ahead because uh, I think uh, it is a big deal. And um, you know, you know, Mister Jordan, in the unlikelihood that you are listening to this story, when you go into the deep state, deep state, take a look at that New York FBI office and Mister McGonagall. You know, it may be it may be
1: worth a couple of days or a couple of weeks. Cool. James, I don't, Man, I, don't I, 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 I don't think he's listening. I, This might, this thing could be as big as anything, you know, and I say, uh, I I, I give uh, Josh Marshall a lot of credit. He's a guy that thinks out loud, but he's a pretty good thinker, and I can feel the, I can just feel it, that, D- this aircraft carrier is starting to turn around. It there. is.
0: And boy, I tell you, when Michael Beschloss weighs in the way he did with those tweets right. uh, yesterday and today, Michael Beschloss is as measured a man as, right. you know, as scholarly an historian uh, as anyone I know. Also one of the smartest people i ever met in my life. Uh, so uh, but I—, he, I right.
1: But he's not a boat rocker. No, I mean, Michael what I is say. A, he's like a, a great efficient. dinner party guy. And, right. You know, he's very good on TV. He's judicious. He's measured. He's knowledgeable. All right, this is not a guy that comes out of the woodwork like this so no. very much, no, which gives absolutely. him a lot. Of, a, I think a lot of credibility. Okay,
0: we we we're, we're going to have a con- the continuing saga of Charles McGonagall, uh,
2: Oh
1: yeah. A,
0: James, we have an A-list guest No, A-plus Admiral James Stavridis The best-selling author, retired Navy Four-star, former Supreme Allied NATO commander Admiral, first of all, we welcome you back It's an honor to have you back Uh, you suggested uh, about a week ago that the Russian forces by the end of the year may be exhausted, as are the Ukrainians, and that may create an opportunity for peace negotiations. But now it looks more like an escalatory uh, proposition. Western alliance sending more weapons, uh, the Patriot, the the Abrams and the Leopard tanks, Russians – Putin's calling up a hundred, you know, a couple hundred thousand new forces.
2: Doesn't that su- suggest maybe that both sides are digging in for a more protracted fight? Well, let me give you the answer to the question in three words. I don't know. Nobody knows. War An honest is, man. <laughs> to say the least, unpredictable. But I still stand by my base case, and let's call it a two in three chance that as we get deep into 2023, the burn rate. On both sides of that firing line, Putin's already lost 100,000 killed in action. Uh, Putin has burned through thousands of tanks, armored personnel carriers. His mobilization is a mess and has resulted mainly in military-age males departing the country, voting with their feet, hundreds of thousands. So his burn rate is high. On the other side, on the Ukrainian side, Alan James, The burn rate is measured in our patients. How long are we in the West willing to continue to fully fund this effort, which is getting very, very expensive? Those two burn rates, I think, are inexorable and will draw together mid-year, maybe a bit later. But again, I'll go back to where I started, Al. War is unpredictable. That one in three set of chances could include a lot of other outcomes. And I think
0: you would say that some of it depends on the events of the next four or five months, where we are uh, in the in the war. We're sending the big Abrams fighting tanks in order the Germans clear the way for the Poles to send leopard tanks. That's the way alliances work. How much difference will these make? And you also said the Russians have been dominating the skies. Will sending Ukraine uh, the Patriots air defense uh, uh, change that?
2: Yeah, a good way to think about this is it's a tale of two wars. One is the land war. Here, the Ukrainians uh, have the Russians on the back foot. The Russians are still trying to dig in. They're trying to mobilize, get more forces. The Ukrainians are already, I would say, in the prime position. And when you add, I would estimate by spring 150, 200 main battle tanks to that equation. I think it looks good for the Ukrainians on the ground, and yes, tanks matter. They can mass artillery, they can crack through Russian lines, um, be a very powerful addition to the Ukrainian hand of cards. Um, The other war, however, is the air war, and in the air war, Russia continues to dominate. I don't think patriots are going to be sufficient. They're necessary, but not sufficient. Here I think you'll see the debate change over the coming weeks or months at most to whether and what type of combat aircraft to provide the Ukrainians, either MiG-29s from Poland, F-16s from the U.S. Um, those would be the two prime contenders. So we still have some cards to turn over as the spring unfolds. Would you favor sending them those aircraft? 100 percent. I've been saying that for since the war started. Right. What's the hang up? Why not? The theory of the case, which I think is diminished significantly as the war has gone on, is uh, it would be too provocative to Russia in that such aircraft could be launched against Russian targets in Russia. Picture jets provided by NATO, the United States, crossing the Ukrainian-Russian border and striking deep into Russia. That's been the argument against it. I think at this point, A, the Russian provocations have been so significant, such concerns are frankly lessened. And B, I think that's a conversation we can have with our allies in Ukraine and simply tell them, we'll give you these jets. The first time one goes over the line, we're going to pull them back. So Mm -hmm. I think that's a, a way to address that. And I, for one, believe We shouldn't put NATO pilots in the sky over Ukraine, but we can sure the hell put Ukrainian pilots in NATO jets. Boy, that makes
0: makes a lot of sense to me. Let me ask you a final question before I turn over to James. Um, Looking forward to any possible peace negotiations, the Russians made a catastrophic miscalculation of which they may never recover. Uh, And the Ukrainians, for all their courage and skill, have faced devastating losses. So could under that circumstance, summer, uh, late fall, end of the year, Could Kiev accept a deal where they get back the southern uh, regions that uh, Moscow legally seized over the last 10 or 11 months, but not Crimea, the status quo ante, basically? And could Putin accept a deal where he gets to keep Crimea, which he took 10 years ago, but for all the cost, he gets nothing
2: else? First and foremost— those are decisions in terms of what Ukraine is willing to accept. Those are decisions for Ukrainians. Right. Our job is to give them all the tools to give them the strongest possible negotiating position when this war inevitably comes to a negotiated conclusion. You know, let's face it, Russia's not going to conquer Ukraine at this point, nor is Ukraine going to invade uh, and attack Russia. So the only door left open ultimately is going to be a negotiation, think the end of the Korean War as a model. Um, In terms of how I think it comes out as an American, uh, as I look at Russia and how dug in they are on the idea of Crimea, which has a very pro-Russian population and has some uh, interesting historical angles that would lend it more credence as being a Russian possession. I don't say I agree with that, but there's certainly more history on that Crimean Peninsula. I think that'll be the red line for Moscow. I would guess everything else will be on the table. How it comes out, anybody's bet. Our job gives Zelensky the best hand of cards.
1: Corporal Carville. Well, uh, uh, Admiral, let an E-4 lob a softball the O 10s way. Uh, <laughs> Eric von Manstein Musk said that tanks were useless, and you saw every retired four-star armor officer come out the woodwork. <laughs> so, listen, to the lob this your way. Are tanks
2: useless in Ukraine, or they have real value? Oh, I, I think they have real value. And, you know, as we all know, I'm an admiral uh, who spends his time on ships at sea, but if I had to be on a battlefield, I would want to be in an Abrams A1M2 tank. Believe me, those things are, are fighting beasts and they are not going to be subject to the kind of easy kills that you saw on the Russian T-72 tanks. This gets to be a technical discussion pretty quickly. But when you can get every four star on the planet saying, yeah, tanks are going to matter here. I'd go
1: with that opinion. I think I'll do it. <laughs> so, so, Admiral, I'm, I'm going to ramble a little bit here because this is something that uh, I've just developed a late life interest in. And that is the, and you, you, you alluded to we, uh, our patience, all right? And I am distraught that we don't have a propaganda, a home front effort here or in Western Europe about this. And I, I go back and I think about history. I'm older so I get to read a lot. Lincoln was beat on August the 28th, 1864. Then the first president of LSU marched into Atlanta September 1st, and that was a game, set, match, all right? That was the election. And then I think about the Committee on Public Information and George Creel, which I studied a lot during World War I that Wilson had. It's controversial, but they knew that they had to have real home front support. For, for this effort, uh, I, I'm going to add just something aside. As There's a great biography on a Naval Academy graduate who is a Jewish guy from Wyoming named Victor Krulak, and it's really <laughs> in, in, in the legend of the Marine Corps. He's really high up there, and I, I, I'd recommend that to anybody. <laughs> and it goes deeply into. It, I think talking about what Bella Wood meant. He wasn't there, but at any anyway. rate, what really struck me was at Iwo Jima, which is February 1945, that we were going to win the war. Public support for World War II was, was, was softening. War bond sales were going down to the effect that James Forrestal, the Secretary of the Navy, was on a ship offshore Iwo Jima. I, I'm sure you would agree the most iconic photograph in the history of the United States military was the Joe Rosenthal. Absolutely. That was taken the sixth day into that battle. It was nowhere close to being won. Not even close. Soon as Forrestal saw that, he sent it to Washington. Three of the six people were subsequently killed at Iwo Jima. Yep. But once that photo hit, the war bond sales went up. Mm-hmm. And we were going to win the war. Okay? We'd had every hero that you can imagine. And I just don't, See, I, I think Putin says these bastards are just gonna soften. And and you know, why do we need this when we got all these problems at home and Western Europe has got this? And if you just gut it out, they're gonna beat you. And I I I, I would love for somebody to say, let's put up I call it propaganda. I don't think there's anything wrong with the word propaganda, okay? But but maybe more sophisticated people like a public Information campaign. I mean, I, I really don't see it. But do you know of any effort is there anyway? I got people that say, James, let's parachute in there and, and, you know, tell some stories here. And we're doing the right thing. These are awful, god awful, international criminals. But we're gonna lose this. we're gonna wear out, and they you know they they got stories of corruption. Ukraine's always corruption. The oldest profession is prostitution, the second oldest is war, the third oldest by about five seconds is war profiteering. I mean, let's get over that but i, I know I'll ramble too long, but <laughs> let's give the Admiral a chance yeah and sort of you know bitching yeah. in the back of the ranks think you know, i think,
0: he, I, think yeah.
1: I think he knows the question, James.
2: Uh, You have rambled beautifully through history, and I'm going to (laughs) add just one other uh, short paseo in your ramble, and that would be in the 1930s, in the run-up to the Second World War. And let's face it, much of the Russian bad behavior we're seeing was replicated by the Nazis. And who saw it coming? Winston Churchill, who spent a lot of time doing exactly what you're talking about, trying to shape british opinion and he did it in the wilderness now we come to the present here i think we have advantages we do have the skills we do have the tools we understand in many ways how to tell these stories and articulate them and there's two sides to it james we need to be showing the evil side of what putin is doing the rapes the torture the destruction of infrastructure, the wanton war criminality, and the other set of stories are the heroism of the Ukrainians, which really do channel the British in 39, 40, and 41. I think we're perfectly capable of telling those stories, but we tend to kind of hold back on that for the exact reason you put your finger on, a sense that, well, maybe maybe that's unfair or maybe that's propaganda. I'm with you. Let's tell these stories. Let's do it in a sophisticated way. I think the narrative hangs together perfectly. And if we employ it well, we will maintain support for Ukraine and we will outlast, your point, uh, Putin, who is crouched like Sauron in the tower in the Lord of the Rings, thinking he can outlast everyone else. I don't think he can.
1: So, Paul so, turned over just on the generalization. There's a story about Disney paid their, their PR guy $6 million for three months' work, and then he got another job making a gazillion dollars. They ought to draft him and make him, if, if he's that good that he's worth $6 million to Disney in three months, but let him put together a propaganda effort in the United States and Western Europe and people that are supporting this. I, I, I think we're missing, I think the home front is a much more critical element of a nation at war than, than, than most people imagine. And I suspect that you understand that as well as anybody.
2: Well, let's, let's close on this point by going back to World War II history. And to whom did the nation turn to tell those stories? To Hollywood. Sure. They, they got the big directors. John George Ford Stevens. John Ford was on Wake Island while it was actively under attack. Um, we do have these skills. We have those tools. Right. Uh, as the saying goes, we have the technology. Let's go to Hollywood. Let's hire it's the good. right people to tell those stories.
1: Absolutely. Yeah, Joel, our friend George Stevens' dad was huge in that. Everybody, you, you did it. But anyway, right. thank you. Go ahead, Al. Al.
0: Well, I just – I had I a bunch. Uh, I, um, uh, James, those were, those were really good. You rambled very well. Uh, <laughs> you wrote a, a fascinating novel several years ago. You co-authored about China and uh, a potential war in 2030. There's a sense now – I get two senses. Number one, the Chinese are really on. Un- I don't know, the decline. Uh, But they certainly don't look as potent as they did a year or so ago. They have economic problems. They have demographic problems. They have COVID problems. Uh, There's a lot. And and I think that's real. On the other hand, I have a friend who's a China scholar, Scott Moore, at the University of Pennsylvania, who says China is so big, we go through these cycles of overstated optimism and then overstated pessimism. Uh, Give us your sense of where China is right
2: now. Yeah, the novel is 2034, a novel- I said 30, you're right, 34, I'm sorry. In in, in 2034, we postulated how the US and China could end up in a very significant war to the benefit of neither nation. And part of the reason the nation stumble into that war, Al, is miscalculation on both sides. And I think it is quite correct that we have overestimated- China's capabilities, a way to think about it is we we tend to think of China as on this very smooth road, just running, running, running. China's road gets very bumpy out there in in the 10-year, 20, 30-year history uh, future because of uh, demographics, environmental disasters, a huge oversold property market, and the lack of being a democracy. A totalitarian State ultimately is like a pot on a stove with the lid clamped on. It's got water in it. It's bubbling. It's boiling. Sooner or later, it often blows up. So I wouldn't overstate China's capabilities. On the other hand, and I think this is probably uh, Scott's point, you look at um, going back the other way and saying, "Yeah, China, they're you know they're not such a big deal," and you underestimate them. The the trick, as always, is to finding that middle ground in understanding the middle kingdom
0: yeah um i'm skipping around a little bit but you had a really interesting column in bloomberg uh this past week on the whole controversy over admitting sweden and finland to nato which you think is really critical the turks are blocking it uh you said they shouldn't force us to make a choice if they did which is more important
2: let's let's have that conversation if and when we get to that horrible point but I'll give you the pros on both sides. Uh, Turkey is a dynamic, young nation. We were talking demographics a minute ago with the second largest army in NATO. And when I was Supreme Allied Commander for four years, every time I asked Turkey to do anything, Afghanistan, Libya, the Balkans, piracy, cyber, anything, new headquarters, anything, they answered the bell. On the other hand, Sweden and Finland are two powerful, capable, turnkey modern militaries who can do everything from put a Gripen fighter, made in Sweden, the absolute equivalent of our Hornets, into the field. And they did so, although not NATO members. They did so, for example, in the war in Libya. The Finns, a nation of 5 million, can put 200,000 highly trained, equipped, motivated troops in the field in 60 days. So frankly, we want them both, we the alliance. I hope we don't get to the point where we have to make a choice. Um, Let's reserve that conversation. I'll be glad to come back on the show, and let's put a date on it. Right after the Turkish elections, scheduled for May 14th, Erdogan, in many ways, is playing to his base, playing to that election. Let's have one more conversation before you force me to make a choice. But after that Turkish election, if Turkey keeps dragging its feet, I'll give you a considered opinion on which way to go. All
0: right. And we booked a guest now for uh, May or early June. One more, Admiral, before I turn it back. As the Supreme Allied Commander, uh, you had possession and access to the most classified documents. Did you take any with you when you retired?
2: (laughs) Yeah, I I went through my garage and I found uh, the (laughs) detailed, detailed classified plans on how to play battleship the game the very best way you possibly can. That's about as classified as I ever got. I got to tell you, every day at 10 o'clock in the morning when I was Supreme Allied Commander, knock, knock, knock at my door. I open it up. There's a young captain or major standing there. They have a binder that they reverently handed me. It was the president's daily intelligence brief. He or she would sit outside my door, literally while I read it, thought about it. Then I picked it up, took it to the door, and handed it back. The idea of taking any classified material home is just beyond the pale for anybody who has, in my view, worn a uniform, because you know the consequences are severe. And so I, I frankly have been shocked at the carelessness, and let's face it, on both sides of the aisle. Although, as we all have been saying correctly, huge difference between Trump trying to hide documents, deliberately take them, showing them off, uh, trying to cut off an investigation, and Biden, and from what I can see, Pence both cooperating looks like the difference between jaywalking and Grand Theft Auto.
1: Right. James. Uh, Sarah, I, I always look because I never know where the East, Western Pacific ends and the Eastern Pacific starts because the international dateline gets me every time. Yeah. <laughs> but, If if China China's, you know, if if you and I are looking at a you know folded map like these during World War II movies, and you know, we see China, we see Taiwan, we see the American fleet, we see the Chinese fleet. But we see Japan.
2: Yeah.
1: And we see South Korea. All right. South Korea is not now they're preoccupied with North Korea, but they they I I Google, this is my extent of knowledge, I Google ten best tanks in the world. The South Korean tank is always in the top three. Yep. All right? in Japan, it, 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 it is 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 stepping up pretty good right now. Huge, of course. Thanks to Rahm Emanuel, who, who our friend is. Okay, <laughs> he
2: completely turned off. Sure, he will take full credit for it. Oh, no, I really he feel.
0: he he is much too self-effacing to do that. Right? James.
2: But how
1: aware <laughs> do the Chinese have to be? Not just aware of us, but the Taiwanese. Or again, not they're not. As they say, they're not chop liver. Nope. And no. the Japanese are increasingly not top the South Korea he would, he would if he were to engage in any mischief, he'd almost have to beg the North Koreans to aggravate the South Koreans and keep them distracted, wouldn't he? He being Xi, you're talking about Xi Jinping yeah,
2: yeah. he would um let let's let's unpackage a couple of points here. One is this is a very good thing that Japan is stepping up. you know it's got the third largest economy in the world. And it's soon to have the third largest defense budget in the world. That's good news. And they're going to come up from spending only 1% of their GDP on weapons and military to spending probably 2 to 3%. Again, that'll vault them into place number three in the overall defense spending category. That's good news for the West. Japan has shown itself to be a, a steady, capable partner and they will use those resources intelligently. So that's that is good news. And if Rom Manuel has uh, created that or engineered it, I take I take my hat <laughs> off to him. Um, in terms of Taiwan, they are not chopped liver, but right now they're not a 16 ounce ribeye steak either. What right. needs to happen over the next as quick as possible is they need to buy things like anti ship cruise missiles smart sea mines that can be driven against ships uh, turned on and off to allow shipping to come in, but go after offensive ships. They need better air defense. They need better cyber. They need better intelligence. Here's the good news. They are the 20th largest economy in the world. They're rich. They can afford to buy this, unlike the Ukrainians. So this is both a, a need and an opportunity for Western defense companies that I hope will be filled soon. And then third and finally. Yeah. South Korea, we tend to uh, overlook their capability. And yeah, they're kind of focused on that peninsula, but their technology, their ability to deliver weapon systems, the training that they have. Hey, they're unafraid to draft the K-pop singers into the Korean military. You know, this is when was the last time you saw a U.S. rock star drafted in? It would be Elvis Presley. Elvis
0: Presley, right?
2: (laughs) So at the end of the day, I like the, I like the idea of South Korea, Japan, United States. Let's throw Australia into the mix. You've got a pretty good package of capability going, which I think will deter China from pulling a Ukraine against Taiwan. They would rue the day, in my view.
0: Albert. Well, this has been terrific, uh, and we have a, a, a commitment for a return date sometime in late May or early uh, June, uh, there is no one better to talk about uh, these great uh, global challenges and issues uh, right. than Admiral
1: James Stivridis. Thank you so much, Admiral. We love visiting Admiral, with you. Before we leave, if, if if any of the friends and your people in the thing want to get this home front cranked up, tell them Carville is ready to report for duty at, at, at a very agreeable fee. <laughs> I'm
2: all over that. <laughs> Great seeing both of you. I'll Thank see you. you. I'll see you again in the spring. Bye-bye. Okay. okay.
0: Take care, Admiral. Bye. Hey, James, you know, the last Congress, the Democrats kicked Marjorie Taylor Greene and Paul Gosar from serving on any House committees. It wasn't because of any of their nutty views. They didn't kick Matt Goetz or Clay Higgins or Lauren Boebert or countless others from committees. It was because Greene and Gosar threatened to kill other members. Now, Nancy Pelosi really didn't want her colleagues in markups with members on the other side who might be packing heat and willing to use it. Kevin McCarthy, in retaliation, is dumping two Californians, Adam Schiff and Eric Swalwell, from the Intelligence Committee. Now, this is all about politics. Swalwell had a campaign finance bundler, who worked for a number of other members, too, who the FBI thought might be a Chinese agent. When informed, Swalwell immediately severed all ties. McCarthy says the FBI considers him a security risk. From everything we know and based on the report in the Washington Post, that is a lie, another McCarthy lie. The Republican leader claims Schiff lied to the American public about the Russian investigation uh, and Trump uh, in 2018-2020. You know, as a, again, the Washington Post said, there is no evidence that Schiff knew the identity of the whistleblower that so up on the Ukrainian matter that so upsets McCarthy. Finally, Mike Kevin, as Trump calls him, wants to kick Yohan Omar off the Foreign Affairs Committee because of her pro-Muslim and opposition to Israeli policies. That would be a terrible precedent. Maybe James, that's part of that secret three-page deal McCarthy agreed to become speaker. To enable him to get to be speaker now you know i'm a little bit critical of the press they draw the parallel you know the analogy to george santos the you know the, the joke who represents new york and putting putting him on committee i think the better uh, point to make is what did schiff and squalwell or omar do to supposedly be kicked off these committees the answer is it's all fabrication in kevin mccarthy's uh, uh, politics
1: so so uh, I, during jazz, I think last year, before last, I had dinner with Eric Solerwell and his wife and Reuben mm-hmm. Gallego and his wife at Commanders in New Orleans. The idea that Eric Solowell is anything other than a, than a patriotic, deeply grounded American is frankly preposterous. All right? this just, right. It just is. And the other thing I would say about Ilyan Omar, I'm not a big fan of some some of her politics and things, yeah, me when either. she made the comment, the kind of anti-Israel, or I guess you could almost call it anti-Semitic comment, uh, Speaker Pelosi called her on a carpet, and she apologized in twenty four hours all right just keep that in mind i I'm, i 'm I'm not here so much to defend her, but to make the point that that she did uh, but for my outrage i, I 'm going to get to it, but I just want to get something i I got an uh, email today the sixteen point three million Americans enrolled in in Obamacare pay a sign-up. The the highest sign-up they've ever had. Insulin is being capped at $35 a dose. For the first time ever, the federal government is ever, in in some limited way, able to negotiate Medicare prescription drug costs. Uh, This is major crap here. This is major crap that affects people's lives. But I just wanted to get that out. before My outrage is simply I grew up with some kind of I don't know admiration, maybe not I don't know, but you know I went to law school but but some appreciation and I guess some measure of respect for the Supreme Court, I mean I know they had dred Scott and Plessy versus Ferguson and a lot of other stuff, but you know basically on the whole tilted to 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 be more favorably disposed of I'm, I'm serious and I, and I say this it, it, I don't want to oversay it. I don't want to say they've become a joke, but they've become laughing stock. I mean, this report that the Chief Justice put out is like, oh, come on, man. So they don't put the justices under oath, they don't interview <laughs> the spouses. But we know who did this. I mean, this is OJ looking for the real killer. He's still looking. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's either Alito or Jenny Thomas or some combination of the both. And, of course, they had cutouts. And, you know, they had a former clerk like John Eastman. I mean, we know what happened. And they don't even ask. And, and, and why do you do this? And, and you know, the, the, the view of Roberts was, well, he's a very serious guy. He's conservative. But, you know, chief is about, you know, see him. And, you know, he's courteous to the lawyers when they come there and stuff. What is this guy doing? Doesn't he know what he's what leading? Doesn't he have any idea of, of how confidence and respect for this court has just deteriorated under his watch? I, I, I mean, I just I don't understand it. He's got a lifetime appointment.
0: What, what are you doing, man? James, you are absolutely right. And, of course, what we know is that Alito and um, and Gorsuch and the others – don't care, but but you're absolutely
1: right about the Supreme and Court. Look at this new film out on Kavanaugh. Yeah. I mean, you know, if I live in the United States, all right, hit up guy, I, I I carjack someone. You know, there's not any excuse. I'm like but if if Kavanaugh can lie through his teeth and be on the Supreme Court, why in the hell can I take your car? Yeah. I mean, it just it it it's just deteriorating. And I'm, i know the average carjacker don't think about the Supreme Court. But it's all deteriorating people's trust in any kind of system. And the Supreme Court, kind of its mission is to give people some confidence that there's something legit. There is no confidence that this is a legit body. No. It's comprised of liars. I agree. You know, we only are allowed
0: one outrage a week. But I want to tell everybody out there, go to Judd Legum and Popular Information to read about all of the book banning that's going on in Florida and other states. Librarians are not allowed to order books for students. Students are without books in some of these places. Judd Legum, Popular Information.
1: God forbid that any eight-year-old should know that there's gay people or racists out there. Oh, <laughs> oh you my know, God. They're
0: banning a book, you know, Wilma, uh, uh, what was her name? The great Wilma Rudolph, the great, uh, the great sprinter, yeah. the black, black woman uh, talked about the way she overcame racism, uh, right. and they banned that because they said it was supposed to make white people feel guilty.
1: Yeah, I think she was from Tennessee, and we know that there's no racism in Tennessee. We do, or, or in Florida. Or in Louisiana, or anywhere else. I, mm-hmm. I don't single anybody out here. But let's not tell the children. What are we going to tell the children that, that there are gay people and lgbtq people and there are racist people out there? Yeah, let's tell them because they're going to know anyway. You ain't going to. You're not going to keep oh, it from. that 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 worries me, James.
0: All right, James, now for our listener questions. And once again, they're off the charts. We're only able to do about a quarter of them, but they're so good. Uh, Teddy in Los Angeles said, uh, I know the Republicans are morally bankrupt, but Santos is so vile and depraved. Are we going (laughs) to look forward to two full years of these weekly tabloid-ready revelations about his past offenses? Is it possible that just from a sheer PR perspective, the Republicans can be forced to kick him out?
1: You know that's that's such a it, 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 so so right now he's still providing us with some value with some laughter you know of course my favorite is always he was on the college volleyball team that'll get you late every time <laughs> but I I think that that we're gonna we're starting to get a, a little tired of this show and I've always you know I've said before that you know one. Wounded sur- soldier is worth more than two dead soldiers because you got to tend to him, and I, I, I kind of hope he continues to hang around and it, provide Republicans for answering questions in a microphone and and some level of amusement. I suspect it'll diminish and we'll get sick of it, but he's the perfect he's the perfect. Example of the modern Republican Party. <laughs> I really believe yeah. that. You know, I, I kind of like having him around. I think he's worth it.
0: Oh, I do too. It's fun. But James, I, I'll tell you what's going to do him in, and it'll do him in you know fairly soon, is going to be campaign finance violations. He went yeah. and he had 40 uh, reports uh, of expenses that were $199.98. <laughs> and that's because if it's over $200, you have to provide receipts. Uh, I right. don't think I, I. You know, I've I've done a lot of travel, James. I've done a lot That's of expense true. accounts. God, I love expense accounts. I think God created expense accounts. One of the best, best things done. But uh, I have never handed expense accounts that had multiple one ninety nine ninety eight or whatever. <laughs> so I, I I think he he, he probably you know has is, is, is engaged in some
1: big campaign finance yeah. violations. Uh, and and that'll is, do him in. He he is entitled to due process, like every citizen. And his lawyers can think of all kinds of things to delay this and keep him there for another year or so. Please do that. Yeah. Please yeah. delay. Please be sure that he has due process. <laughs> and he keeps making a fool out of the Republican Party.
0: He, he, the White House had a party for all the new freshman members, Republicans and Democrats, last night. And George Santos said he wasn't going to go. He was stiffening. God, Joe Biden was so happy. Oh. Yeah. What a oh, gift man. for Mr. and Mrs. Biden. Oh, Our and next you know question comes from Linda in South Lake Tahoe, California. And she said, Listen to your recent podcast and wondering why five to ten moderate Republicans, I'm not sure I'd call them moderate, but whatever they are, can't turn the tables on McCarthy. All they need is for five to ten. them to tell McCarthy that they will leave the Republican Party and become independents, uh, that Bacchus were Democrats, and then McCarthy won't be the leader anymore. Well, they could do that, or what they can do is vote against him. Uh, you know, there's a whole number of things. I mean, they're going to bring up the case of getting rid of Omar, uh, Ilhan Omar, on the Foreign Affairs Committee. They can vote against that. They're going to bring up some other stuff. They can vote against that. They already didn't vote against the rules as they should have. And then when you get to the big ones, the budget and the debt ceiling, uh, they really uh, ought to – we'll see if they show any mettle, any courage. I have turned them the timid 20. That's 17, not counting Mr. Santos, who won in Biden districts, and three who won by less than 1 percent. The Democrats ought to hold their feet to the fire on every vote.
1: So first of all, that's one of the most beautiful places in the United States – and it's a great environmental success story how they came together. I mean, basically Lake Tahoe was going to die. Right. And it's, it's fair to say that there were people from both parties who had economic interests, but I, I think the last time I checked in, they were doing a pretty good job. That's one thing they can do that requires not much courage at all, would be a great thing, is get with 212 Democrats and five of these Republicans and file a discharge petition on a debt limit. I mean, to a person, people say this would be a disaster for the United States, and it will. And of course, they, at the end of the day, they're going to do this. If, so maybe you don't need to switch parties. Maybe you, you, you're just an inherent Republican. You know, Maybe you're Tom Kane's son. You couldn't imagine yourself being a Democrat. You grew up in a Republican household. It, maybe you don't need that kind of courage. All you need to do is say, we're going to sign a discharge petition.
0: Right. The the discharge petition can be cumbersome. It takes a while. There are all kinds of hoops you got to jump through, but that certainly should be an option. But even before that, what they can do is vote. He has to, he can't, he, he has to bring up, I mean, one of the, one of the challenges of being in the majority, you got to bring things up. You can't just vote against things. You can't hide, so he's got to bring up a budget resolution sometime in April or May, and he's got to bring up a debt ceiling uh, sometime over this summer. And um, I, I think he's going to have a hell of a
1: time putting together anything he can come close to two hundred eighteen votes. But you're right; that's all they have all to do. Right, so, so, a discharge is a little complicated. So they can say we pass the the the, the extension of the debt ceiling or debt limit, or whatever they call it, by April first, or we're going to file a motion to vacate.
0: Well, they can do that. It it won't come up to the summer, but yes, I think that's clearly an option they're going to have. But when he brings up the debt ceiling, they say they're going to have an open rule. I don't believe them, but that's what they say. So all you got to do is have someone propose a clean debt ceiling extension and have five Republicans vote with 213 Democrats and it passes.
1: Again, you're much more of a legislative mechanic than I am. I'm not very much, but 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 I think we can agree on there's kind of simple ways that they can yes. do this would and still be Republicans,
0: yes. Absolutely. Jonathan, boy, I hope I don't get this town wrong. It's in upstate New York, I'm sure. Jonathan in Saugerties, New York. I'm going to spell it, S-A-U-G-E-R-T-I-E-S. Jonathan, if, it's, if we mispronounced it, please write us. James, in your experience, one of the first three things you'd recommend that I can do in exploring a grassroots campaign against a freshman Republican congressman in a Biden plus three district. This picks up on what we're talking about.
1: You know, I, 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 th- I think the best thing you can do is just say this, this, this guy, you know, supports the United States defaulting on his debt, uh, su- supports the continuing retention of George Santos in the Congress of the United States of America. And if he dares vote for the, the Buddy Carter thing, of course, that would be too good to be true. But pick anything else you want, you know, in, in, in just those three. And I'll I tell you what, man, if you do that, you're going to win. And don't let them up. Stay completely, completely focused. I would, I would run health care. I mean, I would just scrub the record and see if he'd ever called for the repeal of Obamacare or anything like that. Because these numbers are coming in are, are really favorable, really expensive. Explosive and they have to be exploited. And I I, I know upstate New York pretty well because my daughter went to I'm sorry, I don't know where the town he's from, but my daughter went to college in uh, Geneva, New York. i got bucket loads of friends in upstate New York. And I guarantee you, the percentage of people in upstate New York that have Obamacare, uh, who need uh, controls on di- prices of diabetic medication, all right, who who want the government to to be able to negotiate prescription drug prices is maybe more than most places in the United States. So good luck to you, man, and you know just pound just pound this crap home. I agree. James is the maestro on this, and I would just add,
0: uh, Jonathan, if you're putting together a very, very small campaign staff, you've got to have a campaign manager. You probably want a finance person, and I think the third or fourth person I'd hire is, is someone who just does oppo research on that uh, on that member, and uh, uh, those are your three first hires. Uh, all right, James, I'm going to do something I really do. I'm going to take a question from New Orleans. This is from Henry, who I think is uh, a faithful uh, listener and, and writer. Uh, yes, is it just wishful thinking, or could an independent run by uh, Kristen Cinema actually help Congressman Gallego win the Arizona Senate seat in 2024? More specifically, if Carrie Lake is Republican nominee, and if possible, Cinema will siphon off more GOP votes from Lake than Democratic votes uh, from Gallego. Yeah, it is. There was a poll that showed Lake and Gallego even, and it showed Cinema getting only 13%. I don't know if she stays in or not. People like John Thune are trying to get her to convert to the GOP. Can't do that. She can't win. I mean, she get. In the Republican primary in Arizona, uh, she's pro-choice, she's pro—you know—gay rights. I mean, for whatever her other failings, there are a number of issues that would disqualify her for the Republican Party. I'm not sure she'll stay in, and take a humiliation. Uh, and and I think it's a very winnable seat. I would say this, James. We I we had Congressman Gallego on as a guest, and he's very impressive. He'll be a very good candidate. He, he ought to temper a few things. I mean, he's talked about Medicare for all. I think in Arizona or elsewhere, that's not a good issue. Expanding Obamacare is expanding health care, expanding the right to negotiate drug prices, et cetera. But a you know, throwing everything out and starting a government system is something I think he ought to reconsider.
1: Well, I, I I want to send him a text and say when you look at these you know Obamacare expansion numbers and the number of people that are signing up and you look across the board uh, what we got now was working pretty good let's hold mm-hmm. that Medicare for all in reserve but, yep. but, because we, we got a head of steam going into this yep, yep. right and uh the, the question is, is is a very good question in some of a very sophisticated question it, it was originally thought if you know, she ran as independent, it would take mo- votes away from Democrats. The polling does not sustain that, but you know, races are not run on polls. And I, I would take Ruben and Carrie Lake head to head because it- it- there's a little less risk there. But, uh, and of course, you can't split. And John Thune, by the way, somebody's going to primary him. So, you really want somebody to be a Republican that, you know, supports abortion rights, supports all these federal judges, supports, you know, I mean, she's voted for a lot of Democratic stuff. Yeah. And she voted for Bill Back Better. She voted for all of the Biden, you know, get through stuff. I mean, she's got no future in, in the Republican Party. I promise you that.
0: Or Or in the Democratic Party. No. Uh, okay, Henry, I hope that answers your question. All right, James, our next question is from Sharon in New York City. It's good to get New York in every now well, and then. I don't know where that is. Why is it that Republican House members involved in the January sixth coup two years ago have skirted any kind of liability? They now are powerful, and Garland
1: has not addressed their crimes. Well, I guess the simple answer is, is they have the support of Republican voters. <laughs> there's no – there's no – penalty that you pay in a republican primary for supporting the the criminal that's the the criminals all right and they're all being convicted and they're weeping and crying and 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 that's great but until they get a better quality of republican voter you're not going to get a better quality of republican congressman i I hate to be so cynical but that's just the case
0: yeah uh i know i think you're right Richard in Roseville, Minnesota, says his question revolves around the one House member now that changed the rules can call for a speaker vote of, in essence, no confidence to vacate the chair. Would any current Democratic House member ever use it against McCarthy? And if so, under what circumstances? Very doubtful. Uh, They changed the rule last time, the vacate the chair rule when Pelosi became speaker, because it really is, you know, no matter who's speaker, it's just a bad idea. Uh, I suppose there could be some circumstance. If you reach that point, there may well be a Republican who goes first. I do think if they ever bring up a motion to vacate the chair, you can count on all 212 or, or 213 Democrats voting for it. And I will say that was, that's because of McCarthy. When they threatened that against Boehner, Nancy Pelosi privately told him she would provide the votes necessary to stave that off. Nobody is going to come to Kevin McCarthy's
1: defense. No, and as usual, I always defer to your extensive knowledge of the house, and again, I, I, you've proven my confidence to be well earned. Yeah.
0: James, our final question is it's, it's a twofer, but they're good ones. Um, and boy, what a geographical diversity. It's John in Sonoma, California, and Mike in Tanzania. Mike, I'm not even gonna demand you tell us where in Tanzania, Tanzania is enough. And I'll start off, yeah, Mike is really frames it. He said, here in East Africa, the Babu, the grandfather, sits at the head of the table and makes decisions. He's a family boss. Why? Because his time is short and he has wisdom. Why doesn't Joe Biden take the Babu seat and announce, I am the Babu and I'm not running. I'm gonna become a kingmaker. Is this the right path? And uh, it's the same question basically that John Sonoma asked, why doesn't Nancy Pelosi, a senior Democrat, tell Joe Biden it's time to take a bow and rest on your laurels
1: and leave the stage. Man, there's so much to say about that. You know, it, I, I think that Biden would not want to be a kingmaker. I, I don't know that you can do that anymore, but I think if he did not run, he would go out as an unbelievably accomplished and respected president. And, I, you know, I, I keep, you know, because I use sports analogies a lot, a lot. You know, Joe Burrow doesn't throw the ball to where Jamar Chase is. He throws the ball to where Jamar Chase is going to be. All right. And you can't. And when Biden thinks about it in running for reelection, he can't think of where he is today. He's got to think about where am I going to be in 2028? And, and, and only he and his wife can answer that question. And he's deservedly going to go down as maybe the most consequential four-year president. I think as consequential as almost any eight-year president that you can imagine. And I just hope they give this thing a lot of thought before they... Pull the final trigger. I do
0: too, and I certainly agree on the four-year. I think it. I think it's a stretch to go to you know to put him in the league with Lincoln and Roosevelt and well, Washington I and Jefferson. I, but he I, certainly I, 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 a, I mean, the notion by by was you can't be a you know a really near great president well, if you're a one-term. President. It's just not true. I mean, there are very few of them. Uh, you know, Polk was generally considered one. I'm not sure George H.W. Bush uh, may not be at one point. He looks pretty good in retrospect. He's not going to be great, but near great. And I think Biden's accomplishments in just two years are really remarkable, and uh, I think there's a lot of concern. The Democratic Party betting running again, but you know it's totally up to him and that and that small group around him. So those questions are terrific, and man, when we hear from Tanzania uh, and yeah. Sonoma, California, the same question, James.
1: We have we have reach, we have versatility, huh? I'm telling you, man, when we got, like, well, let get to New Zealand and Australia, but now we've moved over to the African continent, which, well, yeah. you know, I'll tell makes you it, makes it feel good. We're global. Okay, everybody, we'll see you next week.
0: Hey, thanks for listening to Politics War Room with James Carville, and I'm Al Hunt. Don't forget to send your questions for us by email to politicswarroom at gmail.com or tweet them for next week's show at politicon. Following this episode, we'd really appreciate it if you check out the link to our sponsor Hold On Bags in the show notes. They are terrific. We deeply thank you for supporting them. When you do, it helps make this podcast happen. To keep up with us, subscribe to Politics War Room on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you listen. Please rate the show with a five-star review. We'll be back next week with another show as we continue our War Room planning.